After the FDA approved the long-acting opioid Zohydro-ER, which has no built-in safeguards against a common form of abuse, crushing and injecting its contents, Governor Deval Patrick tried to ban the product from Massachusetts. When a district court judge struck down that ban, Massachusetts issued restrictions for prescribers and pharmacists to try to stem abuse. The Zohydro story is part of an ongoing struggle over the balance between adequate treatment of chronic pain and halting the epidemic of opioid addiction. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Dr. Ingvild Olson, Medical Director of the Institutes for Behavior Resources and Reach Health Services in Baltimore. Dr. Olson has co-authored a perspective article on chronic pain, addiction, and Zohydro. Dr. Olson, after the ban on prescribing and dispensing Zohydro in Massachusetts was struck down, Restrictions were issued requiring prescribers to evaluate a patient's history of substance abuse and the patient's current medications, and then issue a letter of medical necessity if they wanted to prescribe the drug. What do you think of that approach to restricting use? Will it help, and should it be instituted in other states as well? That's a great question. And thinking about that question as well as the issue of Zohydro, I think it's very important to think about the context. And the context is that right now in healthcare, we have been thinking about the prescribing of opioids as a balancing act, as you mentioned, to treat the pain and avoid the addiction and overdose. And the problem with that paradigm is that it really pits chronic pain treatment against opioid addiction and overdose, with physicians, patients, family members, and policymakers taking one side or the other. And that's really exemplified by the controversy that we have seen over Zohydro. The challenge, though, is that these issues really aren't that black and white. And so one of the things that we really need to reconcile are the several pieces of a very complicated set of issues. We know that chronic pain is a large, growing public health issue with significant costs to individuals, families, and society. And we know that treatment of chronic pain that sometimes involves opioids can relieve suffering and improve function. And we also know that opioid-naive individuals can overdose with just one dose of a potent opioid, such as Zohydro. We also know that people from all walks of life can develop an opioid use disorder, even in the absence of known risk factors such as genetics, and that patients with opioid use disorder often have chronic pain that can be a trigger for relapse if left undertreated or untreated. And so that paradigm and these interventions that address either concerns of chronic pain or addiction and overdose really can set up situations in which people and institutions and policymakers go back and forth and back and forth. What we try and present in the article and in a way to respond to your question is that that dichotomy really ultimately is not helpful to healthcare practitioners or their patients given the multiple pieces that we need to reconcile. And so what we lay out in the paper is a different way of thinking about the twin challenges of chronic pain and addiction or overdose. And that revised strategy really approaches chronic pain and addiction as interconnected and joined, really conjoined, because people don't come in separate parts. They come with pain, they come with a risk for overdose, and they come with a risk or presence already of addiction. And we feel that none of those parts are any more or less worthy of attention than the others. So one of the ways of thinking about that joining or interconnectedness when it comes to Zohydro and other ways of managing it are to have 
prescribers, potential prescribers, do much better jobs of screening for risk of substance use, identifying substance use in their patients, and really making sure that people are being provided informed consent when or if a medication like Zohydro is prescribed. That really should be done with all opioids. It's not just Zohydro. And so best practices in which opioids are going to be prescribed really should incorporate that non-judgmental screening, brief intervention, referral to treatment if necessary, and a comprehensive informed consent where in which the risks are laid out, but also the potential benefits. Is another way to reconcile those two issues to ensure that there's some sort of deterrent to abuse in an opioids formulation? That has been one of the strategies that the FDA has been looking at. And in fact, OxyContin is a medication that initially when it was put on the market did not contain an abuse deterrent formulation. And subsequently, a few years ago, was pulled back by the manufacturer to include such an abuse deterrent. And given the now attention on both chronic pain and addiction, and if we really think about this framework that we've laid out in the paper of looking at chronic pain and addiction together, it actually presents a number of opportunities for all aspects of healthcare, including the FDA to look at these issues from a slightly different angle. So, for example, when it comes to the FDA, that one of the potential opportunities for them is to develop a new pathway for the development and review of medications or even indications of existing medications that may be able to be used to treat both chronic pain and addiction. For example, there's a medication currently on the market called sublingual buprenorphine. It's taken under the tongue and it has been FDA approved for the treatment of opioid use disorder. For example, the FDA could actually expand the indications for that formulation to include its use in pain management. They can also build on the work that they have so far done on abuse deterrent formulations and require that any new full agonist opioids meet the basic deterrent standards and then facilitate the gradual reformulation of existing products including Zohydro, to meet those deterrent standards. I think it's hard to fault the FDA for approving a pain medication that can help patients, especially when it has less of a risk of liver failure than other hydrocodone preparations. But I was disappointed, along with many others, that the FDA did not include an abuse deterrent feature, and the Zohydro currently does not have an abuse deterrent feature. But in the future... Part of what we mention in the article is that the FDA should think about addiction as part of drug development for pain and think about pain as part of drug development for addiction so that we really have a joint effort and think about these complex issues together. You note in your article that 45 states have policies on best practices for managing chronic pain with opioids, but only four states have a model policy that encourages treatment of opioid use disorder with buprenorphine. Why do you think that is? Is there a resistance to medication-assisted therapy? That's a great question. And when you look at the history of the treatment of opioid use disorder in this country with medications, 
absolutely, we have gone from a history of looking at opiate use disorder as a disease back in the early 1900s to a dramatic shift to really looking at it from a criminal justice standpoint and as a moral issue in the middle of the 1900s and even well into the 2000s. And you're absolutely right that part of what we are now really trying to help move forward is the recognition of opiate use disorder as a chronic illness and its treatment needs to also recognize that scientific and basic medical understanding. That is a challenge because of the stigma associated with opiate use disorder and its treatment with medications such as buprenorphine and is reflected, I think, in the fact that 45 states have adopted policies on managing chronic pain with prescription opioids, but only four of them have that model policy on treating opiate use disorder in physician offices with buprenorphine. Do we know how much of the overuse or abuse of opioids is by people who have chronic pain and who've been prescribed the medications, and how much of it is the result of diversion of medications? That's also a very good question. There are some data that suggests that the number one source of prescription opioids for people who report using opioids for non-medical purposes, that the vast majority of those opioids come from a family member or a friend for free, and as opposed to people who are buying them off the street. I think that we have, unfortunately, a culture where sharing medications, whether it's aspirin or Motrin or Tylenol or prescription opioids or other types of medications, is not seen as necessarily an unhealthy or potentially dangerous thing to do. And while we have done a very good job in public health in terms of educating particularly young people about the risks of smoking and alcohol and heroin and cocaine and kind of the harder drugs, that there also is some data to suggest that young people in particular and even among the adult population, that somehow prescription opioids are safer because they are prescribed by a physician. That, I think, is now very much starting to change, and the messaging around the use of opioids, both to prescribers as well as to the public, is that there are side effects and there are concerns that we have to keep in mind and potentially unhealthy effects from taking medications that have not been specifically prescribed to you by a physician, and that whenever we take any medicine, we really need to be aware of what the potential side effects are. One of your recommendations is for payers to crack down on inappropriate prescribing of opioids. So two final questions about how to do that. First, do pharmacies have the leverage to crack down on wrongful prescribing? Pharmacies do play a role, and in fact, there are some pharmacies, CVS being one of the largest chains of pharmacies, that have really begun to identify situations or prescriptions or prescribers where they may have concerns about the prescriptions as written. And that is a role that pharmacies, I think, should play and can play in terms of educating patients and prescribers about potential medication interactions, 
about the potential medications and type of medications that are being prescribed, providing a lot more patient education in terms of what the potential consequences are of the medications that they're walking out of the pharmacy with, and that when they're communicating with prescribers about prescriptions that are being written, particularly for large amounts of high doses of prescription opioids for long periods of time, where there may be higher concerns or whether pharmacy actually does also know that patient and sees that patient. Again, it's more pieces of data to really help a prescriber who may be prescribing something that based on their interaction with the patient doesn't necessarily seem out of the ordinary, but when presented with additional information, may actually want to really rethink their assessment and formulation of the treatment plan for that patient. I also think that, unfortunately, there are a handful, and usually it's a handful of prescribers who knowingly are prescribing large amounts of high doses of prescription opioids, and pharmacies can play a role in really helping to identify the handful of physicians who really may need more monitoring and more intervention than what they have had. And lastly, looking beyond pharmacies, but still thinking about education, is there a place for better education of physicians that could improve the prescribing of opioids and improve this balance between pain relief and the risk of abuse? Absolutely. And I know the physicians are primary care physicians and the primary care physician colleagues I have and and other specialty colleagues I have, you know, they feel very overwhelmed with not only the work of taking care of patients, but also the amount of education that they're supposed to be getting in lots of different areas, not just in the area of chronic pain and addiction. But again, I do think that really taking a step back and looking at the framework in which you've been thinking about this, that if we really think about physician education all the way from medical school, dental schools, through residency and fellowship training, that if we think about these issues jointly and chronic pain and addiction going together, that medical education really can prioritize training physicians in the management of these issues jointly and together, recognizing when chronic pain treatment with opioids is indicated, how to really assess pain, chronic pain, to clearly make that decision about when a trial of an opioid is to may be effective, and also understanding the risk factors for addiction, the red flags for addiction, and being able to then appropriately manage both the chronic pain and the addiction together. Right now, there are pain management fellowships and there are addiction medicine fellowships. In pain management fellowships, there's very little included about addiction medicine. That really needs to change. And on the other side, on the addiction medicine fellowships, those are relatively new. They are incorporating some element of chronic pain identification, understanding of the mechanisms of pain, and really trying to develop how do we appropriately treat chronic pain in people who have the addiction or a risk for addiction because we're always going to have these two issues together, chronic pain and addiction, and 
just looking at one or the other is really not going to do our patients or us as providers or the public health the best and be the most effective way of really addressing these very complicated issues. Thank you, Dr. Olson.